welcome to another episode of Film Roundtable. My name is Jimena Prieto, and today I'm honored to introduce two guests I greatly admire. Before we start, I'd like to take our customary moment of silence for the 4.51 million reported worldwide COVID cases as of today. We are recording this on August 30th, 2021 as well as our brothers and sisters worldwide impacted by political oppression and violence. Thank you. Now I'd like to introduce our two guests. We have with us writer, director, editor, producer, and actress Isabel Sandoval, who has created internationally recognized films such as Apparition, Senorita and Lingua Franca, which premiered at Venice Film Festival in 2019. Isabel is headed back to Venice this year with her recent short film, Shangri-La, created from the Amused Women's Tales series. We also have with us New York-based actress and writer Hari Ness. Her roles include Alessia and Jeremy O'Harris's Daddy, Life in You, Bex in Assassination Nation, and Giddle in Transparent, among many others. She will next appear in One Up, directed by Kyle Newman. Neff's writing has been published in Art Forum, GQ, Officiel USA, Dazed, and Vice. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. To start, how are you both? Where where are you currently in the world? Hi, Yuna. <laughs> I'm in New York. I'm in my apartment. <laughs> I have turned the AC off for better audio quality, and it is really hot in here. Getting heated already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I am in North Carolina. I've been here for about a year. I used to live in New York for 15 years, and then I decided to move down here last summer, and it's actually um, suited me really well. I feel like as I'm getting older, I'm becoming more introverted, and then so coming down here, I just, you know, really like having the quiet and the space um, to be productive and work on my stuff, so. Mm. Mm. Introspection and is something I actually want to get into a little later, introspection versus uh, interaction with the world and how, how that influences your work. But to start with location, I, I'm curious about setting and how it inspires and affects each of you, how physical location has made an impact in each of your work previously and currently as, as you're speaking, Isabel, maybe if you want to start and continue. Um, yeah, you know, kind of like location setup and the geography of where work has been really, really key for me. Um, in my creative projects. The script for my new feature called Tropical Gothic, I actually started it at an artist residency in upstate, uh, in New Hampshire called the McDowell. Um, uh, they used to be called McDowell Colony, now it's just McDowell. And, you know, around, that was in late 2019, like literally a few months before COVID hit. And that was also the first time I really spent an extended period of time outside of New York City. Um, having lived in New York City, I've come to, I don't know, just loathe winter, especially the snow because of how 
dirty and slushy guests, you know, just <laughs> a few hours after it snows. But then when I was in, at McDowell, because it's really, you know, in a very rustic um, area, and I got there on Thanksgiving, and for the for the next few days after that, it was, you know, snowing nonstop, and it was just like literally winter wonderland. And I realized that, you know, this is really the ideal place for me to create and make my art, um, to be around nature and to have, you know, my own solitude and my own space. To do that, um, when I came down here to Raleigh last summer too, I stayed at first with my cousin and his partner and literally my work area is in the porch and it's, you know, facing trees essentially and foliage and greenery. So yeah, that's, I think, where I'm at my element creatively, um, surrounded by nature um, and a lot of sunlight. That's also been very important for me too. Sunlight is key. Are you exploring different ideas? And in, in, now that you're closer to nature, do you find that things that you previously weren't even curious maybe about? Or I feel like my mind, um, it's easier for my mind to get into that zone where I can, you know, pretty much ignore distractions or things that I don't really need to, you know, be stimulated by and have that free space and that room to think of, you know, interesting, you know, offbeat, odd, strange ideas. Um, yeah, so it just allows me to be in a space, a mental head space, to be open to the things that I need to kind of absorb or be open to creatively. Right, like enough silence so yeah. that you can tap into that. Yeah. I definitely relate to that. Hari, I know you've been in New York for a very long time. How, as a writer, do you get to the intimate place that I feel reading your pieces? It feels there's such a clarity there. How do you achieve that being in a setting that is so constantly stimulating? I think that I respond very well to prompts and mm. cues. And there's no better place to be prompted or cued than New York City, because you are constantly confronted with unexpected situations, unexpected stimuli, and you are constantly called upon to contend with the legend of New York, the brand of New York, the myth of New York in this very cheap kind of exhilarating way. And you're forced constantly to contend with your place in the constellation of New York, mm. both reflecting communally and individually. And I think that the constant interface between myself and this organism of millions, I think it clarifies what's going on for me internally. And um, it's something to bounce off of. I'm very social. I'm very extroverted. And 
I've lived in New York for about eight years now, only half as long as Isabel is here. And it would have been 10 by now if I hadn't tried LA for two years. I tried on Interesting. the trees and the pool and the sun. And I was very not into it and very unhappy and very out of place. But I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't tried it. So no regrets. I relate completely. And did you, were you creating in your short time or, or in your time in LA, even though perhaps as a setting you knew it wasn't what you wanted, did you find inspiration in things that you didn't experience previously? No. <laughs> Love um, it. <laughs> I definitely got on with the show, but... Mm. I wasn't intrinsically motivated to do much of anything other than search for a community, search for a tribe, search for a context, search for a history or a legend or a myth that I could situate or see myself within. And <laughs> LA is like, a pop-up Instagram activation that's a hundred years old in the middle of the desert. It's a lot of other things as well, but it's the lack of history for me and the um, circulation and centralization of show business as well that I didn't really know what to do with. Going back to community is what you what you were talking about in terms of LA. Yeah, I I struggled to um, find people to meld with, find mm. people who challenged me and stimulated me and contradicted me. I have great friends in LA, and I had an amazing support system while I was out there but it's remote and separated and evenings have to be planned yeah. there's very little chaos in LA I don't respond well to order <laughs> um, which neighborhood did you live in Hi. I lived in Silver Lake, Silver Lake, Franklin Hills area, and mm -hmm. then also in Echo Park. Mm -hmm. Okay. Isabel, did you ask. ever did you ever spend a significant amount of time on the West Coast? Um, I've been, you know, I've been to LA maybe like you know almost ten times. Mm -hmm. Now, um. And I've actually been considering maybe moving a year. Um, but I also know like I have friends that tried LA, you know, like for a year or two. Wasn't for them, came back to New York. So it's like a year or 40% LA. Mm. Right now, it seems you found a home in New Hampshire for now. 
Hello, can you guys hear me? Be buried. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm so sorry. I'm so embarrassed. It's just I switched all the everything should be working and it's still it's still not working. I don't know if it's the storm or what. Oh um, my god. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna switch actually. Yeah, if 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 you shut off audio, it will probably work. But I know if you shut, if you shut off video. video, it won't be able to hear you. But yes, maybe I'll, I'll shut off my video. So yes, that would totally help. No, no. If if you turn off your video, you'll it'll it'll probably work, or it might work. Yeah. Okay. All right. Right now, we both look fluid and this looks clear. Uh, so let's jump into the next question. Uh, from setting and the past locations you've been in, I wanted to jump into how you each got into the world of storytelling, how that pulled you in. Is there a particular moment or piece of work that made you want to create your own stories or be involved in storytelling, uh, Isabel? Um, for me, you know, one of my earliest memories you know, childhood memories was, I was four and my mom took me to, and this was in my hometown in Cebu in the Philippines. And my mom took me to this movie palace. And this is what we call, you know, those movie theaters that were built like right before the second world war. So it was pretty massive um, infrastructure. And we went to see this pretty brainless comedy movie starring the Filipino Charlie Cha Chaplin and his four-year-old kid. I don't remember much about the movie itself, but I just remembered. And we were sitting in the balcony um, by before me, and I think that started my fascination with, you know, movies and the cinema. And yeah, pretty shortly after that, I just found myself, I realized that I was creative and that my creative mode of expression is I would come up with images in my mind mm -hmm. and, and scenes and like mentally would connect, you know, one scene to the next and it would kind of form a mental movie. So I think I was initially an editor <laughs> very early on as a kid. And I, I never went to film school. I decided that I didn't wanna go through the traditional route of learning about filmmaking because I felt like I wanted to feel intuitive and uh, unencumbered and uninhibited, mm -hmm. so to speak. And I feel like when you go to a school, especially a film school, you tend to absorb the sensibility and philosophy of teachers that you're studying under. But then my, so my film school was essentially the, you know, world cinema. And in the Philippines, there wasn't a lot of access to films by like Kurosawa or Fassbinder, um, you know, classic Hollywood films, but 
there was a lot of piracy going on. And so like out in the streets, when I was in college, I would come across, I remember the very first art house pirated DVD that I came across was um, Beware of the Holy Horror by, by Fassbinder. And then oh. shortly after that, I discovered they had Pasolini. Oh. I saw a pirated DVD of Salo. We went to really intense films very quickly. Yeah, um, and yeah, that's what really inspired me. Not Salo specifically, but you know, all those films inspired me to become a filmmaker um, eventually. To make the, you saw that you could make those images that were in your mind into a story. Yeah, definitely, and. Um, it, but it took me a while to really pursue filmmaking as a grown-up slash professional career because it's, you know, it's very risky. It's a gamble. Um, and so even though, like, I went to college, I pursued a degree in psychology, which helped a lot with, um, you know, writing characters and the motivations. Uh, but after graduation, I actually... I worked for a year in brand management for like Unilever in Manila. And then when I went to New York, I pursued um, a master's degree in business at NYU at Stern. Um, Unexpected sources that lead you to new stories. The psychology is definitely a form of storytelling. Um, yeah, I, when I was at NYU, I, my, Track for my business degree was both marketing and media and entertainment. Um, yeah, yeah. I was I was curious about. Well, gosh, I mean, I there's so much I want to ask you, but I'm like, <laughs> um, it's funny though because I, you know, like when you decide, I feel like our, you know, our we don't really get to choose our passions. Yeah. Our passions choose us, but we decide whether to pursue them, and you know how much we're willing to put up. Um, my path was, I think, I just really do well when I'm left to my own devices. Um, and, you know, and this is kind of my um, hesitation and reluctance about now having a foot in the door of the industry. Um, because when I made Senorita, I wanted to make a film that was very different from what was being made in the Philippines at that time. And they kind of contend with and engage with third world cinema. There's a lot of expectations about it, primarily space and more of a bastard child of Almodovar and Wong Kar Wai. Um, but I got the idea from Senorita, believe it or not, from, and I know it's such a very, very distant, and who's kind of split in half and that she's wanting to start a new life and leave her old life, you know, of doing sex work behind. But then there's still these darker impulses that are pulling her back, you know, into that life. And I just made it into a very kind of thorny, pulpy noir in the process that turned out to be Senorita. And when it comes to its 
treatment of trans women um, because in the in Philippines at that time there's just a lot of trans women that are portrayed as objects of ridicule and derision you know that they don't have a lot of agency and so I also wanted to come up with a film about a trans woman that's as layered and complex trans woman can be flawed, you know, and imperfect. Um, program. The film, and it was actually in the same section as Alex Ross Perry's The Color Wheel. Um, so that did well enough uh, and played a few other international film festivals that became easy for me to cast my next feature, which is Apparition. And for that one, I was say, but when I made Senorita and Apparition, I was actually already based here in the U.S., but the stories that I came up with are still very much, for some reason, set in the Philippines, and that's true as well with Apparition. And with Apparition, I think that was my Bergman face. <laughs> like Persona, um, Winter Light. I was watching Winter Light a lot when, um, when I was editing Apparition. And I was also very much influenced by uh, Lisa. Dwight Wilburn is essentially about, you know, the rise of Nazism somewhat. Um, and in my film, An Apparition, it concludes at the moment that the then Philippine dictator declares martial law in the Philippines. And I wanted to kind of come up with a fictional historical narrative of how you know these Filipino Catholic nuns who became really strong and dominant figures in the people power revolution of 1986 was, that was responsible for the ouster of that dictator like these nuns were marching in the streets and I remember I was very young but that was such an indelible image in my mind and it came up with a story of how these nuns went, went from being very passive and docile, you know, towing the line when it comes to Catholicism, into the emergence of a militant political consciousness um, yeah. in them. And the first two films, it was really more like I would say that I really like that woman and kind of her contradictions um, felt right somewhat to me, um, but I did officially started transitioning and uh, doing it discreetly until after I shot Apparition and it came out in the Philippines. And so I started HRT and that was also the time when I started writing Lingua Franca. And I knew, you know, while I was developing it at that time, Tangerine was coming out by Sean Baker, you know, the Danish girl. And I wanted my first film after my gender transition to be both a calling card for me as a talent, you know, behind the camera and to some extent also in front of it. And I knew that the kind of story, the kind of narrative that I was making with Liga Franca and being who I was in the industry, and I would joke that I'm a gold star minority, you know, like being a trans woman of color, image 
you know, at the end of the day, it's really not about the story or the plot, but it's your voice, you know, and um, kind of your aesthetic and dramatic sensibility, how different it is from what's being put out there that will make people remember you as an artist and your work. And so, you know, when I started submitting uh, Lingo Franca, the script to like some of these, you know, screenwriters labs, it was actually kind of, you know, we got a few rejections and it's because it doesn't conform or pander to the typical stories about a woman like Olivia and emphasis on focus on physical violence. Um, And especially now that having transitioned and now being a woman and going through all the psychological and emotional changes, I've just come to a point where talking about or depicting, you know, physical violence against vulnerable people like immigrants and trans women or there's nothing groundbreaking or revelatory um, about that. Um, and I wanted to focus on kind of other aspects of that experience. And so, you know, in the first initial passage of Lingua Franca, I was in the very first draft of the script, I was very much influenced by Jean Delmon, actually. Um, and it was even more extreme, the homage that I had for Jean Delmon, and that it was literally a, a 15 or 20 minute sequence of her just running in between the rooms of the house and doing these mundane chores and rituals. And you know, Lingua Franca was also interesting in that it was really the first film that I made that was really primarily guided by my intuition, um, so to speak, in that, of course, you know, I was, there is a script, and I always come to the set prepared, but I was also you know, in, in that shoot that I was willing to be more open to, you know, things changing or really paying attention to whether a scene worked, you know, between myself and the actors. Like, for example, Eamon Farron, who plays Alex, he, you know, arrived literally 10 days before we started shooting. Um, so we didn't really have a lot of time to rehearse, you know. We just had, yeah, those 10 days. And so... Like, especially when I was shooting the sex scene with him, initially, it was more like, okay, we're going to do this shot, and this shot, and this shot. And then I realized in the moment that what is this scene really about? Is it to turn people on? Or is it also a character moment? You know, is it an opportunity to showcase Olivia as a person, you know, in her humanity. And once I figured out what I really wanted to do with the scene, I told them, you know, how through her facial expression, she can, she can convey desire. Um, 
and pace of that <laughs> scene. It took that was the very last scene that we shot for the day in a closed set. Um, it's incredible to hear you talk about it and enlightening to hear you kind of track your personal journey in accordance with your artistic one. I feel like identity for better or for worse is so central to my relationship to storytelling. And I wouldn't have invested or been been pulled under into storytelling to begin with if I weren't desperately from as young of an age as I can remember searching for a way to be in the world. And I would try things on through projecting myself into other people's stories and other people's identities. And it was actually the crux of film, television, and actually video games that allowed me to see possibility in how I could move through the world slash a world. And I see so much in Senorita, you operating from a deep place of intuition and identification, your artistic vision steps ahead of your personal process. And it was the same for me. I was getting cast as women before I had really decided I was one. I knew that the female roles resonated in my body more completely than the male ones. And... Intuitive and intelligent mentors along the way were really able to clock. I played Titania in A Midsummer Night's Dream when I was 15 in drag, and I returned to drag my senior year of high school playing Edna in Hairspray in a very problematic fat suit. <laughs> so, um, and then when I got to college, you know, it was it was always female monologues and, you know, it was dressing up to go out. And then it was a drag queen seeing my looks and asking me if I performed. And I said, well, I do perform. I've never performed in what I wear when I go out, but maybe I could try. So I, I showed up in one of my club looks like with my face painted blue or whatever and I did a Shakespeare monologue and that was the beginning of everything and that led to kind of avant punk drag which led to 
mucking around in the community, which led eventually to a non-binary identification informed by my time on a college campus, which was prolonged because of my time on a college campus. Not super prolonged, but I was like, gender, hmm, what are we doing here? Hmm. And then it was like, no, girl, like, I'm just a woman. Like, let's, let's just, let's be real. And... <laughs> Yeah, this 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 was at Columbia. Um I'm I'm really interested in um attention that I'm I think observing in your new direction with your work vis-a-vis your to be frank pre-transition work which is essentially a standoff between the political and the sensual, you know, the mind versus the body. And I'm kind of piqued to hear you use words like intuition and um, sensuality in how your departure has been from, um, you know, your early creative works to your current creative works. To be frank, it's like, gendered language it's traditionally gendered language and i watched senorita last night and i watched apparition today and these are very political films literally political there is politics happening within them and lingua franca was the one i watched first and um there is a political backdrop but what's so i think next level about that film and intelligent about it is that the political backdrop is like an anvil that never drops. But because of, I think, the art house's preconceptions on what a film about an urban dwelling trans woman of color, I think the expectations that somebody brings to it that you mentioned, you're waiting for that anvil to drop the entire time. And that's not the anvil that drops. The anvil that drops is this one about sensuality and romance and self-respect and independence. And um, we get to witness a woman extricating herself from a narrative she didn't expect to wind up in in the first place. And that to me is trans rep 2.0. And I also think it's Isabel 2.0, at least from where I'm sitting, which is why I think you're so cool because I'm myself searching for trans 2.0, having played like a major supporting role, literally, in kind of what trans rep 1.0 was for the early aughts, having been in the eye of that storm, I'm starving for alternatives. <laughs> and you're feeding me, babe. <laughs> um, and so your project with uh, Jesse, hopefully is a step in that direction. Uh, yeah. Oh my I God. Mean, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I, you know what? Listen, let's feed the children. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to work 
with women who are searching for the same things I am searching for and contending with the same things I'm contending with. Women who are frankly confident enough in their own as womanness yeah. to be fucking gross and <laughs> evil and yeah. chaotic and um, unafraid of the highly specific local and regional pathologies of transness and what that interface does to you, does to us. Mm -hmm. I'm turned off by this collective insistence on positive representation and cis people yeah. humanizing us on their very own terms, plugging exactly. us into narratives that weren't built for us. Exactly. How do we get out of that? <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, it's important for us, at least my approach with Lingo Franca and now kind of like, you know, it came out two years ago and I'm retroactively kind of like assessing like what about it like resonated with, you know, the people here. I mean, please, especially given, you know, I've never really expected audiences here in the US to connect with the film as deeply as they did, like more than in Europe. But I think what's truly quite transgressive about it is like it's, made from the subjectivity or the perspective of, because I feel like even a lot of, there's a tendency even for, you know, art and films made by minority artists to still tell it from the perspective of, you know, a cisgender, you know, like straight, you know, mainstream audience because, oh, we want to, make it more accessible or relatable. And so in the process of taking on that perspective, we're reinforcing, you know, the othering of ourselves in our own narrative. And I just, like, when I was making the work, like, I did not give a fuck about that shit, you know? Like, I wasn't trying to make this, like, for, I don't know, like, some rando cisgender white dude, but, like, even the... The dilation scene um, early on in the film, like um, people were like, I'm not really sure what she was trying to do there. Like, you know, is she like masturbating or what she's doing? Like, well, sorry, you know, <laughs> it's not my problem. And so I think, you know, when we're kind of setting the parameters and the rules and setting demands of how we want our art to be engaged with, you know, and grappled with. And that we expect our audience to meet us halfway as artists, you know, they end up respecting us as artists. 
um, potential investors um, in the film that like, oh, essentially to inject more tropes and cliches into the film, but that wasn't the kind of movie movie that I wanted to make. And so I just plowed on through and the budget was, is initially like 1.5 million. Let's, I talked to my producers, listen, you know, this is about an undocumented Filipino trans woman. I don't need 1.5 million to make this film. I just wanted to get to the right budget where I can check a balance between it's high enough, you know, that people are going to get paid. And even though we had Lynn Cohen and Naaman Farron, they, they're not in the project because if it's, a, it's a paycheck, you know, project, they want to get involved because of the kind of story that it is. So just high enough to pay people, but also low enough that I will have the creative freedom and autonomy to pursue my vision without any compromise. And so that's what I did. I made a film that satisfied my own expectations as a cinephile, you know, and, you know, I'm not ashamed to say that I'm a film snob. <laughs> I rarely watched um, mainstream movies. Um, and that was what my goal was just like, I want this to premiere at either Cannes, Venice or, or Berlin. Um, and luckily enough, it got into uh, artists like us should do more is that we should stand our ground and we shouldn't compromise. And that's, I think, you know, manageable and doable at a certain budget level um, when we're starting out. Because, you know, that's really how we can establish what makes our voice and our sensibility truly singular and different. If we're going to make our own stories, you know, especially when working with gatekeepers who are not part of our community and they're like, we only accept these kinds of stories. And so it just, you know, it's like a feedback loop. We're going through the same shit over again. But if there are enough of us that are really going to put our foot down, like, listen, um, this is the kind of story I want to tell. And this is how I want to do it. Once, you know, that comes out, you know, there are going to be people maybe not just from our own communities, but who really appreciate and who get real art that it's going to resonate with, you know, either stylistically or thematically or tonally or dramatically. And I think, you know, that's enough inspiration and fuel and drive for me to continue making art that challenges me. Um, and what I said for myself, when I started out to make films is that, you know, I want each new project that I work on to be a step up for me in terms of ambition. And that allows me to continue taking risks because that's how I evolve and grow as a filmmaker. And if that strategy has worked just to drop it, I'm gonna continue making that. Um, I'm gonna drop called Gothic, I hope, to be in the main competition of either Cannes or Venice or Berlin. You know, that's my goal. And I'm trying to, you know, the industry term is to package, but I'm trying to develop the film to kind of be, to end up in that um, direction as well. And I'm lucky in that, you know, since this past year, since Lingo Franca came out, 
of course, initially it was like, you know, trans immigrant filmmaker, but, you know, this past year, I'd like to think that I've been able to really control the narrative um, about how I want people to be discussing my art and my film and me as a filmmaker and that, yes, I'm Filipino, yes, I'm immigrant, yes, I'm trans, but I'm also more than these things, you know. These, these things do not encapsulate my experience and my perspective and my artistry. Isabel, I, I have a question related to that. So it seems you greatly consider the result and response of your work or have grown to, to consider that aspect. But do you initially mm -hmm. consider a sort of internal personal experience in the micro scale? Do you start there and then progress to, to an external conversation as you're creating the work? Yeah, um, you know, I mentioned before that I try to be intuitive and both true to myself and be in the present moment when I'm making my films, um, especially like on the set. Um, yeah. I think it has to do with me being a Pisces. <laughs> 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 and it's really just important for us to you know not think about necessarily about the audience or the market but you know because when you're making something that feels true and authentic and with passion it's going to come through in the work regardless um and if you know like lingo franca feels you know i've read a lot of reviews that say that it feels personal and i've said before it's not autobiographical but it's true that it feels deeply personal because it's coming from a place where I'm allowing myself to be vulnerable um, as both uh, an artist and like as the character that I portray in the film. But it's also, you know, without compromise in that I'm very happy that I stuck with the creative choices that I made um, while making the film. And, you know, it's even in editing the film when we submitted the initial rough cut you know the fine cut to some investors and producers that we we had they hated the ending you know they wanted something more didactic and melodramatic and just obvious and that kind of response just solidified my you know decision to stick with the ending of the film <laughs> I was like, this is the ending that I want. And, you know, sure enough, you know, two months after we submitted it to Venice, they, you know, they programmed it out of like almost a thousand entries. And so these investors like came calling back to me like, we love the ending. It's <laughs> we changed so, our mind. Yeah. And I think it's really just a matter of us saying that, no, this is the art that I want to make. And, you know, people are going to come around. Yeah, are stubborn enough. <laughs> hmm. I'm curious for both of you how you navigate being deeply vulnerable and honest. I see in, in your writing, what you're making, even if it's not autobiographical, while also protecting your interior life and having a separation. Is, is this something you consider? Sorry. Yeah. Consistency is important and boundaries are important. And I think I'm still learning 
how to draw those boundaries and how to compartmentalize. I think that um, as soon as you learn that you can use your personal experiences for your work, it's very tempting to become reckless with your internal experiences and kind of baroque about how much of yourself you put on the line for the sake of making the work good. Especially coming out of theater, there is kind of a demand for a certain kind of maximalism and telegraphing to the back row. I'm still learning how to be effective and truthful as a film actor because the camera captures things that are not evident on a stage. And if it's inside of you, the camera will see it. Yeah. And um, that... I'm not, a be- I, I, I don't believe in method acting. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in um, being consumed by creative work, even as an actor, I think that it's important to draw boundaries. And I believe that acting is a craft and it's a discipline and handing yourself over to some facile fantasy of becoming a character and jeopardizing your relationships and the people who are on set with you um, in the name of some pardon my French, patriarchal version of truth. It just doesn't feel cool or modern or terribly disciplined. Hmm. Um, I think I I kind of accept my fate as a thinking actor. I am a brainy one and I think about things just as much as I feel them for better or for worse. I'm trying to work with that instead of against it. How does improvisation fit into that, if at all? See, now it's contradicting myself because I'm a huge improviser. And I think that when you're there, and you've like watched as much TV and movies as I have, there are like rhythms inside of you. And I think as a writer, I'm always kind of writing in my head and um, my improvs always make it in, honey. (laughs) You know, I give you three takes, word perfect. um, And then if the director allows, I will wander all the way off screen. (laughs) Um, And nobody's ever told me to stop. (laughs) Creating new stories. It's so fun. I I love the contradictions, though. I mean, you mentioned chaos. You mentioned discipline. Those two going in this weird hand-in-hand way, I I think, is present (laughs) in anything you do as a as an artist. Um, yeah. 
I think if you give yourself four walls, you can bounce. Mm -hmm. If it's this like endless expansive character in any direction, you're just going to get lost. Mm -hmm. This is what I mean about, this is what I mean about New York. I'm bouncing around against these skyscrapers. Like it's it's, it's the street and buildings on either side. It's just boing, 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 boing. (laughs) That's, that's, that's where I rock. And yes, and there's certain things that you reflect perhaps more other times you you're in a a different reflective state, if you will. Um, Yeah, I. Yeah, it's it's also important to to use wherever you're at and Mm -hmm. not deny a way you might be feeling, you know, Mm -hmm. on a given day, you you have to work with it. Um, You also have to pace yourself mm-hmm. if you're you know you're shoot you know for film acting you're shooting the you know full coverage first and you're not even getting close up until maybe the fifth or sixth time you run it or even more and if you're blowing your load on that first wide shot <laughs> you're gonna get to close up and you're gonna have nothing left no, it took no. me a while to learn that so it's not a science but yeah how do you measure that you act (laughs) you have an awareness of what your task is Mm -hmm. and you measure it it's not this like unfettered creative thing Mm -hmm. there are technical demands Mm -hmm. there are cameras there are other people who are working and you need to work with them Mm -hmm. and um yeah, I, I just don't imagine being able to do that if, like, you know, I am the Joker. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. No shade. Well, no shade. Yes. No, no shade. But that does leave me. Okay, so collaboration. You're both writers, so of course your main collaborator is yourself. You you spend time alone writing very intimate pieces. Where does collaboration fit into the process we were speaking about community because that also impacts the the writing that you're doing um that impacts i'm sure your performance what has the role of collaboration uh, meant for for your personal writing and yeah and your work in general i view screenplays as um, party invitations. <laughs> Beautiful. It's it's why I am more intrinsically motivated to write screenplays and teleplays than any other form of writing because mm-hmm. within them is held the promise of other people mm-hmm. and mass collaboration and contact and interfacing um I'm probably a more naturally gifted writer than an actress I simply just don't enjoy writing as much as I enjoy acting because I am social and um again it's the bouncing I need people and I need the party and um that's why I love filmmaking so much and why I love writing for screen so much 
which is, you know, not a part of myself that has been shared publicly, but I'm working on that. It's, um, it's new for me, but the promise of other people at the end of it is what keeps me coming back to the typewriter, so to speak. So beautiful. I, I love that it's, yeah, the promise of holding a space with others and an invitation. Isabel, what about you in community? How did you find your community in filmmaking? How did you find your collaborators? Um, okay. <laughs> I found my DP filling a punk through Craigslist. <laughs> Word. <laughs> That's incredible. But Isaac turned out to be such a wonderful DP. Isaac, thanks to the amazing cinematographer filling a punk, but yeah, I mean, for me, you know, it's like two different things. I think as an auteur for kind of very personal projects and passion projects, I think, you know, it's really just one vision. It's the vision of the writer director that's holding together the film or the art and that, you know, as a director of, you know, my films, I see myself as a conductor of an orchestra in that, you know, I, it's not a work of art that I create in my own solitude. So I have to manage a team of people and creative partners to make sure that, yes, you know, members of an orchestra, we're on the same page, you know, they're performing as well. Um, as I would expect them to be and their contribute that even though it is ultimately my vision, you know, that we want to achieve collectively, that doesn't diminish in any way the value of their talent mm -hmm. and their artistic contribution to the work, you know, from the production designer, you know, the sound person, the art, art direction, um, and the lighting and the camera crew and yeah so but when it comes to like more mainstream slash studio work for hire or you know projects like on tv where it's a totally different medium um, than film that's actually where i welcome um and i seek out more collaborators, um, especially those who are more experienced in the medium that I am. Um, I'm currently developing, I know that it's been announced, but I'm currently developing a series for FX. Um, and I'm now working on the revisions for a pilot and I asked my EP that I would want to work with someone who is both an experienced showrunner and also a veteran writer who will help me kind of translate my vision because I tend to be, you know, just very cinematic in my storytelling sensibility. And I would want to transpose that kind of story into a medium like TV where, you know, you open up the relationships and there's a lot more, it's a lot more ornate, I think, um, when it comes to story and just building out that world um, and those relationships. And yeah, that's where I 
one thing I can say for myself is that I know my strengths. Um, and when it comes to like my own kind of a tour work as a filmmaker, like I don't want anyone else telling me what to do. But when it comes to kind of forehead projects or media that I'm not kind of intrinsically kind of comfortable with just because of experience like TV and because you kind of have to a certain extent play to an audience, mm-hmm. um, especially you're working on like episodes that are that don't drop at the same time and you are counting on the engagement of a captive audience to stick with you, you know, mm-hmm. through each episode of the series through its conclusion. And that's where I want to seek out, you know, collaborators, um, not exactly just to, you know, tell me what I need to do creatively, but to help me become more aware and cognizant of just bringing in the audience and keeping them in mind um, Mm -hmm. for the storytelling. There's also, I'm also becoming more conscious about questions of making both my sensibility and the storytelling perhaps more accessible um, because I'm the kind of filmmaker, a lot of my characters are very interior. um, Mm -hmm. And I would consider my films, especially the second, the last two apparition in Lingua Franca to be dramas of interiority and that we're kind of trying to excavate and, you know, discover who these characters are, not from what they're seeing or revealing about themselves, but from observation, you know, mm-hmm. of them and how they react to things that happen. And, you know, in TV, you kind of have to give the audience a little more right. yeah. than what you're, and so that's what I'm trying to adapt to. Um, oh, the balance of making yeah. something processable, yeah. but also your, yeah, sharing your intimate Story. Yeah, without kind of compromising what makes my filmmaking my filmmaking, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It, you're, it seems you're both forging new. You're interested in in new mediums, or maybe a similar medium, but but a new approach to it. And yeah, yeah. But also, there's part of me that you know, if I take on more for higher projects, I want to be able to forge on the side a career where I keep making, you know, films that are really challenging and also quite experimental. Um, and, you know, Chloe Zhao has kind of taken that, that interesting route and in that, you know, you have a film like Nomadland, which is very much within her aesthetic wheelhouse, but then taking it on a Marvel movie. Um, yes, so. such a change in in road yeah I actually that curious how do you consider timing in 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 your career is there certain projects that were perhaps offered to you and you just didn't feel it was the right time or before you delve into a certain story or you feel you want to share it how how much do you consider that For me, like right now, I'm lucky in that, you know, the projects that I'm approached with, because I also try not to, I don't want to keep making the same art um, 
mm-hmm. again and again um like lingo franca showcased i think an a facet of my sensibility and um my artistry um but i also want to take on different kinds of projects either tonally or uh thematically and i'm working on a few right now that are really quite i would even say like radically and um extremely different from the world of lingua franca and it's because i want to you know present myself um as an artist as a kind of moving target you know i don't it's mm-hmm. easy for someone like me to get pigeonholed in hollywood and that's why you have to be very very strategic about and also conscientious about the projects that you say yes to because mm-hmm. i also ultimately my goal is you know as a filmmaker i would want to have a career where i get to do any film that i want to make um and to have a body of work you know that's interesting and ambitious and challenging enough that you know high profile and real genuine talented actors and collaborators would want to work with me you know um because i'm making the film kind of like where clairdin is now mm-hmm. you know um after both travai and she's she was able to work with you know the likes of robert pattinson um juliet binoche um in in high life and now i think she's doing another one with um with robert pattinson as well so you know the career of claire denis um lynn ramsey as well um where she might be making just one movie every 8 years if i end up just pursuing that that route you know but each film that she makes matters mm-hmm. um and it's pushing her own art to a different an unexpected direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being deeply selective and careful and kind of precious being with with what you choose to tell and having the time also to to not be working constantly and, and to develop yeah. those projects I think is is a beautiful state to be in. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to wrap up with some slightly lighter questions or <laughs> a few things I'm curious with first any any other questions that either of you have I love listening to you go back and forth I'm curious on the topic of new forms mm-hmm. I'm curious for Isabel's perspective on I think a rather controversial discourse that's happening right now around mm-hmm. um capital Q queer storytelling and mm-hmm. capital Q queer aesthetics this idea that um queering or queer can be a verb and yeah. it's an affect 
involving, um, you know, a linear narrative and, you know, destabilization of character, time and place, any kind of disruption to um, kind of the way we're used to seeing stories and perceiving Mm -hmm. characters and time, all of that, um, you know, looking at the work of Gregoraki or, yeah. you know, in certain cases, Todd Haynes, you know, new queer cinema, mm-hmm. like yeah. sh- shaking that up and having, you know, in the case of like poison, you know, queer content yeah. and queer form, but in the case of safe, like, you know, cis straight content, but like really queer form and really queer yeah. filmmaking. And, and I'm curious about your perspective on that as, um, you know, a queer person who yeah. has been operating within, with, with the exception of Shangri-La, um, mm-hmm. kind of a social realist milieu of filmmaking, yeah. which is kind of rooted in this like historical naturalism. Yeah. And, and, and yet your films are departures from that in both content and form, particularly Lingua Franca. So. Yeah. And, and I get the sense that you're gravitating potentially more towards something that could be described as queer for, you know, what you've said about tropical Gothic and also what, mm-hmm. you've, what you've seen in Shangri-La. Yeah. How do you reconcile um, where you've been and where you're going? And do you agree that this is queer? Sorry, so many questions. Yeah, so it is. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what? It's, I feel like I'm at an interesting point, actually, in my, um, in like, mail. The evolution of my sensibility in that you're right and it's a very astute observation that it's kind of initially a tethered to a kind of realistic perspective and that's because you know like Philippine art house Philippine cinema for the last 50 years has been very realistic in orientation at first in the 70s you have Lino Broca which is you know strictly kind of like a, a blending of melodrama and social realism and in the last 15-20 years you have Brillante Mendoza, which is like the neorealist, gritty, almost documentary-like um, sensibility. And like with Lingua Franca, you know, that was really kind of the first time where I more seriously pursued having some kind of social realism and political impulse, but marrying it with a tone that's more lyrical and more, you know, slippery, tonally, um, combining the anxiety and paranoia with romanticism and and sensuousness. And I actually find myself, especially having made Shangri-La and kind of, again, thinking back on it, like why 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 did I end up doing it like that? Which is quite different from my first two features. But now I'm, you know, becoming more and more, I want to break away from realism and to really explore subjective worlds um, and intimate worlds. Um, and like one of the pet projects that I kind of, like I was recently, you know, deep diving into like uh, Criterion Channel's art house animation series, um, you know, the works of Satoshi Kon, um, Belladonna of Sadness, and that was really the first time, to be honest, that I took animation seriously you know, in terms of cinema. But it's like, 
these animated works, these the ones that are featured in that series, really build their own world and worldview, you know, from scratch, so to speak. So that it, it's, it's unlike, diff, you know, unlike anything that we've seen of cinema that is tethered or anchored in some kind of realistic sensibility and orientation. And that's what I want to pursue in my work. And about the question of whether that's queer or not, that's also you know, a question of ask, I ask myself, like whether it, is this Filipino cinema? Is this like diasporic cinema? But I feel like it's most helpful to me um, in my creative process to not think about these things you know, consciously um, because I don't want to be, again, I feel like I would be inhibited or encumbered in some way if I have to think of those parameters. Um, I want to feel completely free and inhibited when I'm making my art. And the analysis of whether is it queer, is it you know diasporic cinema, I feel like it's something that scholars and the critics, um, I would let them think about that because ultimately because I aspire and I try to be authentic in my work these facets about me you know like being queer will emerge mm. anyway you know in my work and so I don't want it to feel like it's influenced by a certain dogma or paradigm or sensibility. I just want to be true to how I feel when I'm making my art and of everything about me, you know, like my background, my history, my identities will, will turn up regardless. I agree completely. And I think that I chafe against the kind of discursification of something that is very intuitive to me and very yeah. inherent. And um, the only thing I'm ever really thinking about when I'm writing, and probably something that I am trying to do while I'm acting is creating work that I would wanna watch and making sure I'm having fun. Yes. Because if you're not having fun, nobody else is. Yeah, exactly. What's the point <laughs> of doing it, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, yeah this is I, so I, fun. I think this is. I, I think it's what makes your work unique because. Mm. Oh, I think a lot of American um, trans storytellers. I think it's very easy to become mired in the expectations and the discourse and the politics and. Yeah. These things to me are antithetical to the five, six senses that I think you have to come out of cinema, yeah. the, the synthesis of it. Yeah. You can get stuck in the words and the ideas and totally. politics. Yeah. And I refuse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so thrilled that we got to speak, Kathy. Me too. You're lovely. <laughs>
I want to close with two questions. One, um, is there for each of you a creative work by anyone in any medium that you feel hasn't gotten its proper due, maybe deserves revisiting, uh, that you want to highlight for our listeners? Um, <laughs> I know that it's kind of gotten a resurgence. Uh, recently but you know two things i think one in the cut by jane campion mm -hmm. and i know that this is on harry's all um favorites and letterbox but funeral parade of roses yeah. <laughs> that's that's what i was gonna say yeah. that's oh my what God. i always say um <laughs> yeah i funeral parade of roses is completely singular and stands outside of, I think, so many of the expectations that we bring to, well, I wouldn't say we, I would say everybody else, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that, that they bring to films about trans people and, you know, trans people who aren't American and trans people of color. Um, I, I think in that vein, um, I mean, I, I, I love these like 60s kind of like narrative docus that are just kind of like mucking around in subjectivities of people who have never been on camera before yeah um to that end i would recommend i would totally double program this if they ever handed me the cues to the art house <laughs> portrait of jason shirley clark shirley clark yeah um i mean like kind of like fuck shirley clark for making portrait of jason but um Portrait of Jason is so incredible because of its subject, Jason Holiday. It essentially something that was meant to be kind of this rather mean-spirited documentary that gets turned into something more than a documentary because mm -hmm. of the sheer tenacity, magnetism, and enchant of the subject um mm. he turns the gaze around and i show that movie to people any chance i get and i think that it's a companion to funeral for sure yeah harry which would you recommend starting with <laughs> probably like jason first so you can go out on a kind of like gonzo sugar high note with funeral yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Portrait of Jason is not always a very easy film to watch. Mm -hmm. And um, what can I say? Can I say? Those are great <laughs> recommendations. I'm excited. I haven't seen either, so I'm going to check these both out this weekend. The uh, last question was just summer's ending. Are there any summer based films that you want to watch before the season's over? Um. I already seen La Piscine. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, by Jacques Deray with Alain Delon. Um, but yeah, that's, I've seen it. I love it. <laughs> I saw that this summer too. Oh, wow. Um, it was, oh. it was really sexy. But I, <laughs> Richard Brody just wrote this thing reading the girls for like getting into La Piscine. So, I actually always love what he writes 
kind of so I want right. to read that um, it's a double you know. feature read watch the movie read the piece yeah I I don't know I'm kind of already kind of like girding my loins for like fall movie season mm. I've had I've, I've had my fill of summer that's for sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear. Yeah. Thank you both for sharing your time and inspiration with us. And it's been beautiful hearing you. Thank you everyone for tuning in. If you don't already subscribe to our newsletter for updates to our YouTube and we'll see you in the next one. Thank you.